Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What could go right? For this discussion, I'm joined by Parag Khanna, who has been a global thinker and traveler for the past decade plus. He has written several books, all of which are on the theme of where are we and where are we going. He is the prototypical big thinker. And his most recent book, which is out in February of 2019, so it is either already out by the time you're listening to this or just about to be out, looks at the rise of Asia. The future is Asian commerce, conflict, and culture in the 21st century. And one of the things that this book does particularly well is shift the aperture, shift the lens, shift the perspective of how we are viewing the world. The we in this case being an Anglo. This is a podcast in English. It is uh, largely a Western audience or people who can speak English. And so the perspective does tend to be what does the world look like from the vantage point of the United States or the Anglo world or the Western European world? And as we know, and as we read, and as we are sensible of every day, the world is becoming much more globalized insofar as there is the rise of Asia and the rise of China and the increasing affluence. That is a challenge to the American sense of self. It's a challenge to the Western European. It's a challenge to the past several hundred years of human history where one portion and one area of the world has been preeminent and predominant. And so looking elsewhere, looking at how this change appears from a different vantage point can be illuminating. And in many ways, if you're sitting in multiple Asian societies today, not that they are necessarily linked by anything other than geography, the world looks very different. And in many ways, there's a much more optimistic view of the changes that are afoot because the relative prosperity and the relative gains in that part of the world are that much greater. It's easier to be optimistic when you feel that your present is going well, at least economically and materially, and your future holds more. So Prag Khanna speaks to that. He lives in Singapore. He was born in India. He's lived in the United States. And he has been able to, I think, have the sensibility of many cultures by virtue of who he is, where he's lived, and the work he's done. So with that, let's speak with Prag. So, Parag Khanna, you have yet another book on the big themes that are shaping our world. This one 
pretty consistent with some of the themes you've been focused on over the past decade about the relative rise of Asia and I suppose perhaps the absolute rise of Asia. So in a nutshell, and having gotten very good, I'm sure, at encapsulating your thoughts in pithy, digestible bites, what's the thesis of the book? Well, it's, um, you're, you're very astute in pointing out that I have been, I guess, consistently focused on the rise of Asia, absolute and relative. And whereas in the past, I and many others have focused maybe singularly or overwhelmingly on China, the purpose of this book is to point out that the future, you know, what you would call the Asian century is called the Asian century for a reason, not because it's not the Chinese century, it's the Asian century. And therefore, one has to start to look at the actual structure of the Asian system which is greater than just China. There's 5 billion people in Asia, and only 1.5 billion of them are Chinese. The fastest growing markets in Asia are no longer China. Uh, The youngest populations are also outside of China. More foreign investment is going into South and Southeast Asia than into China. So the further you look into the future, the more Asia returns to its multipolar past, which is something that's a very natural condition in Asia and uh, doesn't resemble a Chinese hegemony. So I think that Asia is actually going in a direction that we should want it to go in, and one that it's actually most historically comfortable and familiar with. But we, as the West, are not particularly familiar with this Asian history, and we need to become more familiar with it. So what I do is kind of flesh out this path towards the return to Asia's natural multipolarity, what it means for Asia, what it means for China, what it means for the U.S. So that's a fairly optimistic view of the emerging order in Asia. And in a lot of ways it is, and I'm sure you'd agree, it's sort of a 20,000 foot view that if it pans out, it'll pan out over time. But in the real time that we all live in, it will probably seem a little more chaotic and much messier, right? So you talk to a lot of people, you live in Singapore, there is a mix of support for China's emergence as the, by population and economic dynamism, the, the most significant player, um, much as the United States was the most significant player in the Western Hemisphere, but by no means, as you just point out, the only player. So there's the mix of admiration for that and support for that, but there's also a good deal of concern amongst non-Chinese Asian countries about exactly what kind of significant player is China going to be. Do you, do you share any of that concern? Well, it's funny. I think that we tend to be late to the game when we're observing the region from the outside, you know, moving to this region about five years ago and becoming kind of an expat in Asia and joining, quite frankly, millions of others from Europe and the U.S. that have been out here even longer has been an amazing learning curve. And the observations about China's rise, you know, have obviously been things that everyone living, you know, in greater China and in Asia more broadly have been keenly aware of for quite a long time because they've been drivers of its growth. People look at Asia's collective rise as some kind of sui generis, China-sort-of-driven phenomenon, but it's actually these waves of mutually reinforcing growth that began with Japan and then spread to the Asian tigers. And let's remember that it was the Asian tigers in Japan who were the principal investors in China's rise. So they know what they have been sort of fueling. They've been watching it unfold They've been victims of the diplomatic, you know, probing, pushing pressure that China applies to its neighbors for a long time. So this isn't new news, quite frankly, you know, to anyone in this region. In the last 20 years, it has been difficult 
to generalize about which countries have an anxious view of China's rise versus those who view it as a force to be bandwagoned with rather than balanced against. What we see happening now is that just about everyone is suspicious of China uh, because they know that when China can get the other upper hand, it will. And therefore, what we see is individual countries becoming a lot more sophisticated in how they make sure that China can't undermine their economies or their political systems. And that's something that I try to document, not at the 20,000-foot level, but right down at the ground level, country by country. And what you get is a very you know, mixed picture of how to accommodate China, profit from China, while also you know, keeping China out of your internal affairs. And I applaud that diplomatic sophistication that I see here that I think that we tend to underappreciate when we're far away. Of course, the other major investor in China's rise was the United States over the past 20, 25 years, uh, which is obviously part of the mix today with rising China-U.S. tensions. I mean, we'll see how the current phase of that plays out, and it's not like these systems are about to immediately become disentangled, having become so intertwined over years. But there is this moment in time, right? You've had, I think, a fairly constructive perspective about the arc of human progress and the way in which the world is evolving out of a bipolar Cold War system. Of course, it feels very much like we're in a different kind of bipolar moment into a multipolar, multi-regional world where different civilizations, different cultures are reasserting themselves and finding their own degree of affluence. But you're writing this current book, at least, in a time of intense global anxiety, lots of pessimism, and a foreboding sense that things are not going to go well. We are replete with analogies of 1914 moments, which I guess is even more relevant to the question of, is the interconnectivity economically in Asia right now a guarantor of peace and prosperity, or as opposed to, are we repeating these weird patterns of the past where people feel like they're on the verge of solving the eternal human issues of conflict, and boom, it comes back and hits them where they least expect it. So what do you do about that sentiment versus your own observations? Are we just in a weird, depressive moment? Well, I have several uh, responses to that. The first is, you know, I spend a fair chunk of the early part of this book kind of disabusing us of this tyranny of analogy and historical analogy for several reasons. The first is that, you know, part of what is going on is that the awareness of historical patterns and pressures, and also the shadow of the future, the role of deterrence, all of these kinds of things that are actually front and center in many leaders' minds, help us to prevent the, the sort of repeat of the past in ways that get, I think, too much attention today. We should really be focusing on the logic of leaders as it is today, rather than just assuming that the past will repeat itself. I don't really think that's a constructive use of time. One should become more educated about the present rather than just assuming the past repeats itself. And I think that's a fairly logical observation. The second is uh, also that a lot of these analogies relate to Western history rather than to Asian history. For example, the question of polarity. Asia is historically uh, naturally multipolar. You have a very large, you know, the largest number of civilizations in the world coexisting in one geographic region. And none of them can actually conquer the other based on their size, distance from each other, mutual unintelligibility, power balance, whatever the case may be, a whole range of factors. So Asians are quite comfortable with this multipolarity in ways that Europeans historically are not. 
because they're culturally similar enough and geographically proximate enough that there's always been concern that one can conquer the others. So we're really using the wrong analogies very often when we when we just sort of reach back to Europe's past to predict Asia's future. I argue, again, I think this is fairly logical, that one should be better acquainted with Asia's past to predict Asia's future rather than always re- reaching back to 1914. And I'm not accusing you of doing I've, I've written entire essays about the ways in which the analogy is relevant and not. So it's not that it's a useless conversation. It's just that it's not nearly as significant as getting to know Asia better. And one of the more fruitful and, for me, educational parts of this uh, exercise of research was going back about, say, 4,000 years to the present and trying to reconstruct Asian history through an Asian point of view. That's actually the first chapter of the book, and it really shows you how differently Asians view their own past and their future. And that brings us to to the present, which is really the third area that I wanted to uh, kind of highlight in, in response to your question, which is that what you describe is this global mood of pessimism and so forth. There's really not a global mood at all. The insularity, the anti-globalization, the populism, uh, xenophobia, all these kinds of things, that's not the day-to-day reality for 5 billion people, which is the majority of the world population. Uh, what you've described is not true in terms of you know the average Chinese citizen, the average Indian citizen, ASEAN, this region of 700 million people where I live. I can give direct evidence of three or four billion people who are pro-globalization, optimistic about the future, and want to see borders come down, want to see more integration, more mobility, signing lots of trade agreements with each other, and so forth. They have their fair share of geopolitical rivalries. Almost all the major geopolitical rivalries in the world are in Asia. Hardly, you know, sort of naive to them. I live in this region. I deal with the governments and so forth. But that said... I would say that if you wanted to speak about a global mood, the global mood would still be, uh, on average, the way I'm describing it, not the way a few Trump voters or Brexiteers would have it. Quite frankly, I think that we have to, when we use the word global, be very careful in describing or, or making claims about who we're talking about. I mean, it's an interesting perspective. I think it, it, the sense of pessimism extends beyond the nationalist or xenophobic elements in Western society, because you do have throughout a lot of Latin America, Mexico, United States, Europe, Russia, lots of the Middle East. So, I mean, I think it's more accurate to say there's a global divide, not an insignificant one, between a trend toward pessimism and a trend toward optimism or a trend toward a sense that the future is not looking as bright as people would have expected versus, as you point out, um, a more generalized sense in Asia that the future still holds great promise. And that may be one of the great divides in our moment in a way that is indicative of what you have documented quite well, which is there is an ongoing power shift, a power shift in terms of economic prosperity, a relative power shift, not necessarily a decline as much as a rise. And those things can create a good degree of uh, unease and confusion about where where things stand. But you've also written in the past about a belief that greater connectivity between burgeoning metropolitan areas and the kind of the waning of the state. Do you see this moment when it applies, let's say, to the Western world of unease and increasing nationalism as a, as a death throw or as a, a potential challenge to your sense of how these things were going to evolve, let's say, seven, ten years ago? No, it's a, it's a great question. And again, no doubt there are many societies that have that 
sense of defeatism, pessimism, whatever the case may be, I would just challenge the notion that there is some kind of auto, automatic correlation between that pessimism or pessimistic versus optimistic societies, meaning that there's going to be some kind of clash between them. Because as you and I both know, the primary losers from you know an inward shift, an isolationist shift, a populist shift are those societies themselves. The biggest loser from Brexit is Britain. And I remember people you know, in the market saying, uh-oh, Brexit is just going to be a disaster for the European Union and for global markets. Well, actually, no, it's just a disaster for Britain. You know, and Trump is going to bring down the whole world with him. Well, actually, he's just bringing down America. That goes back to one of the sort of fundamental messages I had in Connectography, which is that globalization will go on beyond you. It will go past you. It will go around you. It's bigger than you. Globalization is bigger than America, even if America has been one of the leading architects and drivers of modern globalization. It's a system that supersedes its creators. It's a layering that accumulates and expands like a network over time, and you can't bring it down. And that's something that countries learn when they uh, pretend or attempt to sort of control the system from the outside, not realizing that they're really just one node in it. The, the role of uh, cities, urbanization, and so forth play an important role in, in that context because we clearly see that a successful state, you know, past, present, and future, is one that has a sufficient number of, um, you know, modern, developed, economically diversified, you know, internationally well-connected uh, cities that have important roles in, in regional or global supply chains. And, and, you know, America actually has 300 metropolitan regions, 40 major uh, cities uh, and city clusters in the United States. That, that's more than any other country in the world now, save for China, which is trying to reorganize itself into these two dozen kind of megacity clusters. China, therefore, is becoming what I, what I sometimes call an empire of megacities. And the reason this is crucial to resolving this issue around which societies are optimistic and, and moving in the right direction economically or not is that generally speaking, you know, you, what you want to see happening in a, in a time when Western societies are facing sort of this demographic deflation, right? Uh, aging populations, high dependency ratios, and stagnant social mobility is that you need to be attracting young people to be moving to cities and to earn higher wages and contribute to productivity and economic dynamism. And you either do that through your own population or through immigration. And so again, to not recognize this and to pursue the policies that are going to bring that dynamism to a large number of cities in your country is just going to accelerate your demise. And Asia, of course, is investing heavily in its cities and in uh, sort of, you know, modernization of cities, high quality infrastructure, building the kinds of economies, uh, you know, and, and infrastructure that attract millennials. So I've written about this in, in quite a few different contexts, kind of saying that the success, success and failure in the future is really about attracting millennials to your cities and taking it from there. I mean, that's an interesting challenge when it comes to Asian societies where inward immigration has not really been a thing, right? I mean, there's not a massive China doesn't attract immigrants. I mean, it, it, in some sense, it attracts its own immigrants in the massive population shift from rural areas to urban but the demographic question is a profound one in that uh, what you're seeing in certain parts of the world now is becoming much more globalized in that very few societies are seeing replacement population, right? Uh, maybe India still, Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines in Asia, but China, uh, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, uh, increasingly Thailand are seeing 
very similar dynamics that you're seeing in Western Europe and in non-immigrant United States and Latin America, which is the more affluent people get, the more educated women are, the more a part of the workforce they are, uh, the fewer children people are having. And that creates a whole different demographic future that China is obviously going to face sooner than than most, or Japan is already facing because of its of its aging population, China because of the one-child policy, which even when it was reversed, hasn't changed the arc. So what happens then? I mean, what's what's the outcome of, of a world where, you know, everything has unfolded in the past couple of centuries in the West and in Asia in terms of increasing populations and maybe all this economic growth and dynamism was simply a, a necessary response to how do we feed, house, clothe more people without total societal collapse. But that's not the challenge going ahead. I mean, is that something that you think your arc of the world is doing a better job confronting? Well, it's something that I've been looking at very closely because once we started to recalculate our demographic projections globally and settle not at a 15 billion population in a Malthusian crisis, but rather um, a world of maybe just 10 billion people, again, the majority of which are in Asia. Or not even. We have to start to think differently. Or not even, not even. That's exactly right. I mean, that that trajectory was based on higher birth rates than we're currently seeing. I mean, I, if you and I exactly were going to bet, I'd, right. I'd bet the under on that one. No, and I know, but I would take that position as well. And it's 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 actually one of the most interesting conversations that I have almost every day when when I'm with various uh, you know audiences and groups because many people still cling to the belief that it's going to be higher, and there's so many reasons why it's not. Urbanization is another major factor contributing to lower birth rates as well. So the more urbanization we have, which is, of course, one of the great megatrends of the day, uh, the lower that number is going to go. So I'm with you on that. And again, that means, though, that Asia has the majority of the world's population. And as so long as they encourage the recirculation of Asians within Asia, they'll be able to bridge those demographic mismatches. And that's exactly what is happening. It's something I document quite precisely in, in the book, because I'm looking at how uh, Japan, for example, and, and this is such new news, I wasn't able to include it, but they, uh, you know, every year are passing new kinds of uh, either laws or, or incentives uh, to recruit more migrants into the country. They're targeting another 500,000 next year uh, from around the region. You see younger uh, Filipinos and Indonesians moving to uh, China. You've got Vietnamese moving to Korea. In these very, you know, sort of culturally uh, insular and homogenous societies, you've never had higher foreign-born populations and intermarriage than you have today. So it's quite remarkable how they are coping with this in a pragmatic way and letting in a lot of foreigners, actually. In China, too, it's quite interesting because you have a lot of inward migration to China now. It's documented and undocumented. Many Asian countries now have these very kind of one-stop shop entrepreneur visas uh, for young talent to come in, uh, whether Asian or international. So, you know, you can pretty much go and live for five years in China now if you want to, you know, no questions asked. Um, same thing goes for lots of other countries. So the more of this recirculation you have between South and Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia, uh, the more you'll see Asia cope uh, with the fact that with wealth and, and prosperity comes uh, declining birth rates. And you think that there's going to be more, I mean, I know these policies are in place. The question is, is there going to be the resilience toward immigration and more multicultural within an Asian context societies? I mean, Singapore, obviously, that is what Singapore is and has been for much of its modern history. Other societies, you point to Japan, Korea, the only 
legacy of immigration is a more negative one stemming from earlier in the 20th century when some of that immigration was forced and not particularly welcome. But you see that changing by necessity or also just the willingness of, of these societies to more coming. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. So it's a great question. I mean, there's melting pots statistically, and then there's melting pots sort of culturally, right? And, uh, you know, I've been looking at the rise of Asia's hubs, uh, whether it's large cities, Tokyo or Shanghai are never going to feel culturally diluted, but they are, they have become expat hubs uh, for a large and even growing number of foreigners. Again, statistically, it's hardly a threat to Chinese culture, but Shanghai is a place that's very tolerant and welcoming of all of those foreigners, and they create their own new kind of fusion. Of course, Hong Kong and Singapore, as you say, have been that way for generations and thrive by it and continue to welcome talent uh, from around the world. As far west as Dubai, obviously, you have the most international, most diverse city in the entire world, where 90% of the population is foreign-born, uh, you know, for historical reasons. Um, and I'm seeing even second-tier cities, um, or I shouldn't say, you know, Bangkok is not a second-tier city, but it's become a major crossroads and hub for people from Southeast Asia and, and also around the world because of its lower cost of living. You're seeing definitely smaller places, you know, Phuket, Bali, and so forth, attracting permanent foreign population that are really settling and, and plan, you know, families who plan to live out for decades and international schools popping up and so on. So there's absolutely no question that I'm seeing it in, uh, in each region or sub-region of Asia these international melting pot hubs uh, emerging. And it's, again, it's a sign that when you have such large populations as Asians, Asian countries have, they really don't fear. They really don't have some sense of cultural threat from the outside because it's not the first time that it's happening. Again, it's really, really important. I'm not going to belabor 14th century history here, but there are three or four previous periods of Asian history that Asians at least know better than we tend to, of very significant migration flows and sort of recirculations of populations. And, and even in a recent period that we're all familiar with, uh, you know, British colonialism, the British Empire stirred the pot 
quite dramatically around here, right? The fact that Chinese, Indians, Indonesians, Malays, Filipinos are, are already all over the place is not new. We have to really, really remember this. Um, so looking at Asia through the prism of national borders as the kind of baseline reality is, is not even, is not nowhere close to the appropriate starting point for understanding the overlay of, um, of Asian civilization. I mean, it's a really important point. I think one of the things you do well, and that's important for Western audiences, is to continue to point out that there is a much more complicated global reality than the lens through which most Western societies perceive it, right? That we place ourselves, as do most human beings, at the center of our stories. And the result of that is the way in which we look at the totality is very much through the lens of what about me and how does it affect us and whoever your us is. But that does lead to an interesting question about what's going on currently. So there is a degree of which, and I've talked to a lot of people who live in China or Japan, Singapore, Hong Kong, who have a perspective of the United States in particular right now and, and Europe to some degree of, wow, you guys, you Americans, you Europeans are really losing your way and you had your moment and wasn't that great or wasn't that terrible, but whatever it was, it's of the past, right? You're, the sun is setting, the sun set on the British Empire, now the sun's setting on the American Empire, and now we can go forth and carve and define our own world. You know, we different Asian groups with whatever rivalries we have. I mean, there's a concern that that will go too far in that it's unclear how history will go, as you say. It's even unclear how the past went, and we're always debating that. And the present is constantly a chaotic miasma. And there there can be an overshoot, right, in that the American perception of themselves as being central to everything, even with 25% of the global economy and shrinking, is largely incorrect. But isn't there a danger that the new perception emerging out of Asia of you guys are of the past and oh well overshoots as well, this kind of you know, there's no perfect Hegelian synthesis of this thesis and antithesis? Well, I mean, I try to actually aspire to that in many ways in the book when I talk about sort of fusion of civilizations and, again, these layers of history that don't simply knock each other off the pedestal in a clean break between past, present, and future, but rather absorb each other, you know, and I kind of call it sort of new layers of soil that are that are put on top one after the other. And I think that that's the correct way to, to look at it. So there's a lot of things from American culture, the respect for and embrace of freedom in many societies. And of course, again, European colonial habits and sovereignty. There's so many things of the Western past that are baked into Asian modernity, whether they like it or not. So that's one thing to remember. I think that what people may say rhetorically is, is neat, simple and wrong where they're very much living in a Western world. What we're just getting used to is the ways in which our world is gradually Asianizing bit by bit in the reverse direction. And I think that's okay. I think that's part of the healthy pattern. So both sides need to open up more would be my simple response. But let me just also say that when people are making derisive remarks about the, the West, one thing that I go to great pains to point out, and I, I do this less in this book than just more generally, because this is the as a political scientist and, and someone who's active in these just current political economy dates, debates very much as the, the way you are, is that there's a difference between the West and then the Anglo-American system and political economy and malaise and populism, right? 
So Germany is not going down the path of Britain or America. Neither is Canada. So we need to be really, really clear about our terms. I, I, I do not subscribe to the notion that all of Western civilization is in decay or demise. I, I differentiate very strongly between continental Europe on the one hand, again, which is not free of problems by any stretch of the imagination, and the Anglo-American uh, system, which certainly has experienced a pretty substantial delegitimation. You know, Germany is not delegitimized in the eyes of many people around the world. In truth, as you know, it's very much a role model uh, to many countries in terms of high-quality infrastructure, social democracy, you know, welfare state, and so on and so forth. Finally, just my own point of view is that the world is heading into a fairly unprecedented period of, you know, sort of structural and global multipolarity. So uh, I don't represent the view that America is disappearing from the world stage, even if it's experiencing relative economic uh, decline. Uh, I view the world 10, 15, 20 years from now as being as, as multipolar as it is today with North America, uh, Europe, the European Union, European Commonwealth, whatever we would want to call it, and Asia being the significant economic blocks and strategic anchors of the global system. And within Asia itself, Asia being a multipolar region. And I think that's a very sort of reliable, if you will, trend that we are uh, moving towards in terms of the geopolitical landscape. So, again, you know, sort of declinism and rhetorical dismissiveness of the West, I actually don't buy that. I just think we need to clarify what the West is and be clear that, you know, whatever is happening in the United States, it's still a major geopolitical pole. It has greater self-sufficiency than any other region of the world, which is an asset, not a liability. It's a liability when you're trying to win a trade war and thinking that you can um, push around countries that are less dependent on you than you think. But it's certainly a geopolitical asset to have that degree of self-sufficiency. One of the themes in calling this podcast What Could Go Right is obviously that question of what could go right versus everybody focusing on what could go wrong. There's an interesting, really big picture question that the rise of multiple Asian societies pose, which is the world has kind of unfolded for the past couple hundred years under a presumption of this triad of liberalism, democracy, and capitalism are this virtuous triangle that will lead to prosperity, greater human rights, more self-fulfillment, more stability, more peace. And then with brief moments of contestation, whether it's communism or autocracy or fascism, all of which are just loose terms for big movements. But the rise of multiple Asian societies where democracy and liberalism as entrenched concepts are not nearly as entrenched, what, what do you make of that future? And does it even matter? I mean, obviously, in the West, there's a lot of questions about what does democracy even mean? Is it functional? Does it actually provide for individual rights? These are legitimate questions, right? They've been asked kind of sub rosa for a long time. But you do have different systems in China, in Singapore, in Thailand and Vietnam. And, you know, what does that mean for these these broad categories? Do they not matter? Should we let them go and just kind of see what works? Well, I think a couple of things there. I mean, first of all, I think it's now fairly well established for the past two decades, just looking at China and a couple of other countries where scholars and I would imagine educated members of the general public would acknowledge that you can have capitalism without democracy. 
in the way that China has. You can have modernization, you know, without the kind of uh, full embrace of, of individual liberties the way we know it. So we do have to disaggregate these terms if we want to live in the real world and observe the dynamics of very large societies that simply can't be taken as exceptions to the rule. We have to simply appreciate the rule is wrong, it's broken, right? And therefore, we do have to disaggregate these concepts and look at how they play out. As it pertains to Asia, there obviously isn't one model. As you as you said, there are very diverse societies. You do have, let's not forget, some of the foremost, top-ranked, most respected and, and uh, accredited, if you will, democracies in the world are in Asia. Uh, of course, due owing largely to the legacies of World War II and American occupation and tutelage. But you've got Japan, you've got Taiwan, you've got South Korea. And then you have sort of, you know, culturally Western societies here that are also beacons of democracy like Australia and New Zealand. And um, so when Asians are trying to sort of decide what can they learn in terms of how to modernize, improve, um, you know, make progress. In, in their political systems in terms of, you know, becoming more inclusive politically while also delivering good governance and welfare, um, they don't really have to look to the West per se, right? There's a lot that they can learn from very proximate states, uh, and they do through their constant engagement uh, with each other. So it's really important to point that out, both from a standpoint of just kind of, you know, the, the functional reality and also from the intellectual standpoint, because Asians actually do wake up looking at other Asians and dealing with other Asians. Part of why I wrote this book is because we've been living in a world since the mid-2000s, really, where Asians had more internal trade than external trade, uh, which accounts for their resilience during the global financial crisis uh, 10 years ago. So I think each country will go its own way. I do spend a lot of time on this in the book towards the end, where I kind of talk about um, technocracy, right, which is something I wrote a very short book about last year. I said, you know, there is a an acceptance, even a preference in Asia, even in democratic states now, to have kind of a, a strong executive with a long-term mandate to really deliver on kind of a national vision that usually focuses on things like infrastructure, education, uh, economic diversification, and so forth. That doesn't mean that they are inherently culturally more tolerant of authoritarian strongmen. That is, again, one of these kind of caricatures that is sort of thrown about way too often in our Western press that I don't think it does justice to the kinds of you know, political movements and leaders that we're actually seeing. You know, India has been a democracy since its modern founding. Um, just because Modi has certain illiberal cultural tendencies, he's very much subject to democratic uh, forces. And as you can see already in, in state after state after state, his party is suffering very harsh setbacks, you know, only now into his first term. So let's remember that a leader like Duterte, who we, you know, malign every other day as being a kind of, you know, gruff uh, thug, the, the Trump of Asia, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to defend him and his sort of personal attributes. What I am going to point out, though, is that he might be at the moment, at this point in time, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's perhaps one of the one or two most popular leaders in the entire world, because you have to appreciate the initial conditions of the society and not just look at whether or not the guy knows how to eat with a knife and fork at a G20 meeting or something like that. I think that's what we're missing out on. These countries that are a certain stage of development, 
They're not all the same. They have different needs at different times. Some of them, you know, need, and again, it's millennials, it's young people, and Filipinos are hardly, you know, sort of radically conservative people, right? I mean, it's uh, the most Americanized, one of the most Americanized societies in the world, you you would say. Um, so why is he so popular? And, and I'm raising that not to answer the question, but simply to remind us that there's many different kinds of governments out here. Many of them are more democratic than we think they are, despite the personal attributes of their leaders, and that they are not automatons, nor are Chinese people, quite frankly. Um, so it's important to to bear that in mind when we try to characterize uh, their governments and their, their governance system. This does raise that fundamental question of, is this idea of democracy being a system of kind of rules and laws that is predictable and routinized, is that not going to be replicated in the same way, and does it matter, right? Because there are systems of human organization change radically over centuries, and at each moment in time, human beings being human beings tend to reify whatever it is that's dominant and say, this is right, this is moral, this is good. The challenge for the world as it's evolving is, you know, whatever Singapore's mode of governance is, and it's hard to find an ism that fits it, right? It doesn't look like that kind of liberalism democracy, capitalism matrix that is so familiar to the past 100 plus years of Western history. And that's unsettling because we don't have an easy slot and box to put that in. China itself, right? Nothing really fits in a description of China. You know, it's autocratic, it's technocratic, it's chaotic. It, you know, there's a lot of ground level freedoms and, and local councils that are sort of voting. You know, it doesn't fit any established template, it doesn't even fit a really a, an established Asian template of this is what society is about. And I guess my only question as we as we come to a close is, do you see this as a thousand flowers blooming and we'll, we'll see how it plays out? Or are there more, is, is there some loss in the kind of the decline of this triad of the democracy, liberalism, capitalism triad? Well, it might be too soon to say that it's in decline because it might experience a renaissance, you know, as, as populist movements sputter in the West and fail to deliver anything uh, like the you know benefits that they promise. When it comes to Asia, it worries me much more that we are worried and that we are rattled by the fact that, you know, these Asian systems don't fit into an ism than, than, than what those systems actually are. The systems, because I view them, I monitor them and sort of study them constantly, and I'm blown away by the extent to which there is a rapid evolution in, in governance out here. The experiments with accountability, the willingness to sack leaders for corruption, um, you know, the, the, the rise of new political parties in many countries uh, in a very dynamic kind of way, almost as dynamic as some European countries. This is, by the way, the kind of dynamism that we tend to think of as bad dynamism, like, you know, the five-star movement coming out of nowhere. You have parties coming out of left field in many countries. Look at Pakistan and the rise of Imran Khan. There's now a millennial political party that's challenging the, the military in Thailand. Like I said, you know, there is a, a perpetual evolution both in the micro-democratic politics and an evolution in the kind of system that the design of government is being experimented here. It's being experimented in China in ways that are naturally and, and manifestly quite unnerving, but they are also are serious experiments that we should observe very closely because we know that sitting where we are, there isn't a playbook in history for how to govern in an orderly and effective fashion a country of a billion and a half people, nor is there necessarily a playbook for, for India. 
So how far does our conversation get if we simply say, my goodness, this is not really adhering to this ideational triad that we've that we're so accustomed to? Let's live in the real world. Let's deep dive into these societies and let's try and understand how they are grappling with their day to day realities and, and, and what the outcome of that is isn't a fixed thing. Uh, like I said, you know, the way they experiment with role of the civil service, the usage of data, which, you know, maybe is a good, important point to, to bring up just even though we're at the end, um, is that, you know, while we are sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to social media and technology, governments out here are saying, let's harness it, let's canvas public sentiment, let's use that metadata, let's figure out what's wrong, uh, let's figure out what, what the people are saying they're complaining about. And again, these are either democratic or even partially democratic countries out here are doing this. Even Vietnam is doing it. We know, of course, that China is doing it in all sorts of ways. Um, but they're willing to use that data to improve public welfare. And I think we could actually learn from that. Again, the irony being we invented this stuff, right? I mean, these are Western technologies that we feel have corroded our democracy. Meanwhile, they're enhancing the quality of governance out here. And the way to arrive at that insight is not, not because I'm naive, it's because I live here, and this is actually what is, in fact, happening every single day. So for us to miss that enormous story, that would be the great law. I'm sure we could speak for another several hours about all these issues, and I'm sure we will over the coming years. But for the time being, I think we're at the end of this particular conversation. Once again, it's, I think, an important topic that you've added to your uh your corpus of works over the past decade plus. Obviously, the Western world needs to attend much more to the changed realities of a multipolar world where Asia is once again asserting, as you point out, what had been a historically predominant position or at least preeminent position. And the idea that the lens that we view the world through, we in this case being a Western audience or an American audience, is a lens, not the lens. And, and that's true, of course, if you're in Singapore and you're China, that's also a lens and not the lens. And trying to synthesize these multiple parochial regional perspectives to try to get some sense of what's happening, it's never going to be a simple synthetic picture, right? It's always going to be complicated and messy. Uh, but at least you've been able to point out much more acutely that there's a whole other way of looking at the world, Um depending on where you are and what your cultural perspective is, then that which has formed the kind of consensus narrative, which has emerged from where the power centers have been for the past couple hundred years. Thank you so much for the conversation. Everybody should go read. Thank you, Zach. This book and every other book by Parag Khanna. And I'm sure we'll talk soon. Looking forward to it. Thank you. So we've been speaking with Parag Khanna about the world from the vantage point of Asia. And it is a more optimistic view. It's a more optimistic view, as we've said, because many Asian societies are on an economic, cultural, and material upswing. And much as the United States in the 1950s or unfortunately, to some degree, Europe in the 1990s, unfortunately, because it's turned so quickly, societies that perceive that their present has the wind at its back and a future that is bright do tend to feel better about that future than societies that are facing real challenges in the present. One is not right and the other is not wrong, but in order to really understand what's going on globally, which is a fact 
infecting all of us. What's going on globally touches all of us, even if there is a huge wave of anti-globalization. Being cognizant of and sensitive to these multiple perspectives rather than your own parochial regional one is absolutely essential to trying to figure out what the hell is going on in the world that we live in. And hopefully these kind of conversations are a way to add to the mix, broaden the horizons, open up new possibilities about how we're thinking about the world that we're in. And we will continue having those conversations. Thanks for joining me. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to yeah. bring something like this to life. And yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend <laughs> that I don't right Hold now. it in. Hold and our current faves. In. Luffy must have his due. <laughs> Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.